Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Today's episode is a Muggle Mail episode, and we have a variety of topics to discuss. Not just emails, not just voicemails, but also we have two news items to talk about. And we're announcing the 2021 physical gift for MuggleCast patrons. And then later we'll play a game in which we try to guess who said certain things on MuggleCast in the early days of the show. This game was created by one of our listeners, Mike. First up, a news item that broke a few weeks ago, but we've been waiting for this Muggle Mail episode to talk about it. The Cursed Child is going to return to Broadway, Toronto, and San Francisco as one show. No more two-part Cursed Child in North America. This is following sagging ticket sales, which we've spoken about on the show before. Here's the thing. According to the site's Q&A page, the new show will be three and a half hours long, including intermission. The original two-part show combines was five hours and 15 minutes, including two intermissions. So intermissions aside, if we go with my math, which isn't always perfect, but it's okay. I did put some thought into this. I think the show is going to be about 100 minutes shorter. Wow. Now, if you read like the marketing... Cursed Child is like, this is a reimagining. It's the same show. (laughs) But a hundred minutes gone? There's going to be a lot cut. Wow. That's a lot on the cutting room floor. That's a lot of Albus and Scorpius love left on the floor. No, I'm sure they'll keep on all that. They they just they're just getting rid of all the bad dialogue. So I guess the core story will still be there. You know, the general overarching plot. The time turner scenes, I think, will be there where the story heads, you know, the ending that'll be there. But yeah, what are they going to cut? And we're not going to get into the details today, like our guesses, because we don't even know. They haven't shared any of that info yet. It's probably going to take some people posting it all on Tumblr for us to figure it out. (laughs) Well, I haven't seen the original show, but I am familiar with the story and I'm very aware that everyone who sees it says, yeah, the story is crap, but the show is amazing. And I wonder if this might actually be a good thing for this story, if they're selective about whatever this hundred minutes of content they're removing is, maybe they're going to be able to tell a more streamlined story that doesn't feel quite so fan fiction-y, mm. I guess. Mm. I'm trying to be optimistic. No, it. I, I think those are all really good points. As somebody who has seen the show, though, I don't remember a moment that I wasn't really entertained. So putting aside right. the actual story itself, I feel like there was always something that was kind of keeping your attention. And everybody that was in that show did an amazing job. And Agreed. now just thinking through, are they going to cut characters? How does that impact the actual you know, cast and crew of the show that were gainfully employed right mm-hmm. and and not only those folks but those who are working in the theater itself you know thinking of concessions and others you know th- this is going to have an overall impact and i know we talked on other shows about how much it costs just to renovate that theater uh, i assume they not only did that in new york but they did that in toronto and san francisco as well so i mean these theaters were renovated using millions of dollars just to be able to uh, put on Cursed Child. So I don't know what they're going to cut. 
to your point, Andrew, I think we're just gonna have to wait and see. And I wonder, does that mean that they're gonna publish a brand new script book? <laughs> <laughs> we have the originals. Don't sell them. It's, it's gonna... a reimagined script. Is yeah. It's, it's the eighth Harry Potter story reimagined. That's reimagined. Or yes. do you worse. think it'll be the ninth Harry Potter story? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well. I will say that I think they'll keep all the visually stunning things, right? The things that made the original play so fascinating to see on stage. There's no way they're going to get rid of um, the warble when the time thing comes or the trolley lady scene where they're jumping off. The, there's just no way like any of That's that. That's my please don't cut. The yeah, trolley lady the, the scene. Trolley I, lady, was, I, I love know. that. Yeah, It's real near and dear to my heart as well. But things in the old folks home. Um, with Amos Diggory, that could probably go. Yeah. And another thing is, though, they might not just cut scenes entirely. They might just condense the scenes. So instead of five minutes, we're getting one minute at, let's say, the retirement home. I worry that that will lessen the quality of the story because with extra time, they can get a little deeper with the dialogue and, and you know, moments can become more heartfelt. And to Micah's point a few minutes ago, the show does go by very quickly. You aren't bored when you're at the show. So I feel like there's very little they they can cut that's boring. I feel like we were very lucky in that we got the benefit of seeing these two parts and also the fact that you know, we have these original script books, but we also have the original playbills. Those are going to be collector's items. <laughs> no. Well, my big question, why is this only in North America? Why aren't they adjusting the Australian and the East, like the the other continents? Yeah, um, I guess stories and ticket sales are probably going better there. I think that's what it comes down to. Well, we're gonna have to like take a trip, like international overseas, to catch the OG like classic Cursed Child. <laughs> classic, and do, like a huge comparison. Cursed Child classic. That's what yeah. they should call the original one now on yeah. their playbills <laughs> and whatnot. The new Cursed Child, the reimagined Cursed Child, still doesn't open for a couple more months at least. I don't know the exact dates for each, each of these productions. Of course, COVID cases have been rising again, so who knows what that means for the Cursed Child. We'll see. Something else we wanted to mention is that there's this new Harry Potter Forbidden Forest experience that is opening in the UK this fall. This is created by Warner Brothers Themed Entertainment. This is pretty cool. It will allow Potter fans to walk along an illuminated path in the woods, which will transport them into the worlds of Harry Potter and Fantastic Beasts. Along the way, they will discover surprises, some of their favorite moments from the Forbidden Forest, and encounter mystical creatures, including hippogriffs, centaurs, unicorns, and nifflers. <laughs> this is what I've always felt they should do at Universal's uh, Halloween Horror Nights. They got to do a scary Harry Potter one, right? And this is not that. It's not scary, but it's a nighttime walkthrough. Yeah. It it sounds really cool to your point and it's outdoors, so at least you're reducing the risk of COVID significantly, which is probably factored into their decision making, although I Unless the Niffler has COVID. Yeah. I mean, he's got his paws all over so many different things that you never know. Well, hopefully you're not getting close enough to the Niffler. To, uh, oh, yeah, he's getting exactly. close to you. He's raiding my pockets. If you want to tickle the Niffler. <laughs> should we write to Warner Brothers? Excuse me, is the Niffler vaccinated? Yes, and what vaccine did, did he or she get? I'm taking a look at Google map images of Arley Hall and Gardens, where this is, you know, in the classic um, 
style of British halls and uh, estates. It looks great. It looks like the perfect sort of, you know, place, perfect setting for something like this. I could see something like this coming to America one day. Okay, so we are very pleased to now unveil the MuggleCast gift for patrons, or should I say gifts for patrons, here in 2021. So, a little history. We were kicking around some ideas, and we settled on two, and we couldn't decide which one to go with. So we said, why don't we just pursue both and let patrons have a choice? This year, for the first time ever, you are able to choose which gift you receive. So Dumbledore's Army level patrons will be able to pick one of the two gifts. Slug Club patrons will be able to pick one of the two gifts or receive both. So what are the gifts? Gift one, Eric. Yes, I will be coming to your home as part (laughs) of this year's physical gift. You can touch me and poke me. And I will crack a joke and have a 30-minute conversation with everybody. Oh, sorry, you meant tell them what the physical group is. Yes. Okay. You guys know we have a special anniversary. Next week, in fact, MuggleCast turns 16 years old. And this is a primarily an American podcast. And what happens in America when you turn 16? You get a car. A new car. Or a driver's, a driver's license to get to drive a car and everybody sends you those cards in the mail saying, oh, we're going to watch the roads now. You're 16. Um, very culturally American. Anyway, this year's physical gift is, uh, this year's first physical gift is the MuggleCast Sweet 16 customizable wooden model car. Oh, look, Eric this, has it on video. You have to post a picture of that on social media. This is one that was painted. The MuggleCast Sweet 16 customizable wooden car is a laser cut three millimeter Baltic birch plywood car that is assembled to resemble the car that Harry and Ron fly to Hogwarts in their second year. But it has very special customizations such as the lightning bolt, Mike Bolt logo on the hood and MC16 on the trunk. Anyway, this model car, we're going to ship it to you in like a laser cut. Like basically, if you've ever put a model together, it comes on one sheet. You punch out the pieces and assemble it. And it takes like 10, 15 minutes, no problem. You guys each received the latest version of this car. What is some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's fun to build. I had a really good time putting mine together. And I think what's really fun about it is you can kind of customize it a bit. I mean, Eric, I know that you painted yours. In my case, um, I'm a little on the clumsy side. So mine is a bit wonky looking, but I like to think of that as uh, the car that Harry and Ron took to Hogwarts post Whomping Willow encounter. <laughs> so there's still some charm to it. I'll post some pictures of mine on social nice. too. Yours looks fine, Laura. I don't know what you're saying, Whomping Willow car. Right, so. <laughs> the car is also in our album art, by the way. So it's that little. Yes, yes. Very, very, no stranger to MuggleCast. So. I would say, too, that it was just a lot of fun to put together. I like do-it-yourself projects. You feel a sense of accomplishment, and you'll have something that is uniquely MuggleCast to put on your bookshelf, maybe hang on your uh, Christmas tree Ooh, <laughs> there you go. during yeah. the holiday season. Yeah, Do some fun stuff with it. It will come with instructions. I don't know if you said that earlier, yes. but just to be oh, clear, yeah. it will come with instructions. We're not making you do it, you know. Without yeah. any guidance. It's also not, 
I will say it's not one of those wooden models. You see these where they like fit together, but it's like a thousand pieces that are all like gears and stuff. This is strictly like five separate pieces and it's glue and that's it. Yeah. Um, so there will be pictorial instructions and we'll do like a video tutorial yeah. with all of us there where you can put it together alongside the muggle casters. All right. So gift number two. These yes. are what we're calling MuggleCast Retro Throwback Socks. So for the first time since our very first MuggleCast t-shirt, we are bringing back the iconic MuggleCast Squares artwork, which was originally inspired by Apple's iPod marketing campaigns at the time. And we're, and we're stitching those into six-inch high socks. We know socks are a very popular gift idea, and we hadn't done that before. And of course, we, all, we only used that square design once and never again. So we thought this is a great combo of ideas. Uh, the squares depict the four current MuggleCast hosts in their original poses and colors from the 2005 t-shirts. It's the exact same ones, but just the four of us now. The socks include our Mike Bolt logo, as well as lightning bolts scattered across the feet. Um, there's also some purple and yellow colors adorning the rest of the socks. So it's just like a it's a it's a unique design that we came up with from scratch. It's very fun and whimsical looking. And by the way, these are not going the design is not screen printed onto the sock. Yes. These are stitched into the socks. We didn't go cheap on this on either of these gifts. <laughs> We're giving you yeah. a good quality product. So um, you can see a photo of those on our Patreon as well. And we'll post a photo of both items on our social media channels. So like we said, Dumbledore's army patrons can pick one of the two. Slug Club patrons can pick one of the two or both. It's up to you. The order form is on our Patreon now. So visit patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Make sure you fill out that form. If you want one of these gifts and you don't support us already, it's not too late to get one of them. You can visit patreon.com slash MuggleCast. You can become a patron today. You can fill out the form immediately. We'll send your gift after three months time, after you've been a patron for three months. We do have a deadline. You must fill out the form by September 1st, 2021. So I think that's it. Every year, we want to create a good gift. Like we said, we got stuck on these two ideas. We couldn't decide. So so we said, let's just do both. So here we are. And we hope everybody yeah. likes these as much as we do. We know that socks are what Dumbledore's greatest desire in his heart is. Uh, at least that's what he tells Harry in book one. So, I mean, who are we to follow or do anything different than what Dumbledore did? Well said. Dobby's working on them. <laughs> and I'm, I am so glad that we were able to bring back the retro like Me iPod too. shadows yeah. like that. It's so memorable. And like, I'll never forget seeing our listeners with those shirts for the first time. Or Ivana Lynch, when she came on the show, wore that shirt to the convention and was one of like the original MuggleCast listeners. It's just so iconic. It's so original. It's so OG that it truly earns the title being on these retro throwback socks. Definitely. Yeah. And as always, thanks everyone for your support. Okay, it's time for Muggle Mail. Micah, as always, you have selected today's entries. Do you want to preview them? What can we expect today? Just a really uh, diverse selection of emails and voicemails, to be honest. You know, we, we usually give it a few weeks, so some of these will be going back a couple of episodes, but as always, our listeners keep us on our toes. They keep us in check, and some of them have some really uh, good theories and questions. Okay. So we're going to start with some voicemails. The first one's from Phoebe about Petunia. 
Hey, Mugglecast. My name's Phoebe. Um, I had a thought while listening to episode 521. Um, Laura is talking about how often do you think about your neighbors, like what they're doing, etc. What if Petunia, besides being nosy, just in general as a person, but like what if her nosiness was exaggerated because she knew the wizarding world existed? And what if she was looking to see if any of her neighbors were magical? Like mm. she's not ignorant to the world and she her her standards of perfection and normalcy are due to not being accepted into the wizarding world and overcompensating in that way. What if she was just spying on all of her neighbors because she was curious if any of them were part of the wizarding world? Thanks. I like that. I really like, I like that, that take. And I like taking it a step further. I really like it from the perspective that, you know, Petunia has built up such resentment towards the wizarding world that she would want to make sure that there weren't any other, you know, freaks, as she would call them, around her home and around her child. So I really like mm. this take. I love the idea that the Dursleys wouldn't even know, like even Petunia wouldn't even know a freak, quote unquote, if they saw one, because they totally ditch Harry with Mrs. Fig, who was also brought up in the Wizarding World, even though she herself is a squib. uh, All she needs, she needs look no further than Wisteria Walk. I wonder, (laughs) though, if she did find another member of the Wizarding community, would she have been drawn to them? Just knowing that she herself so badly wanted to be a part of that world. Part of that world. Yeah, maybe. That's really what I was hoping for in my comments was that you were going to sing <laughs> The Little Mermaid. Yeah, I guess I could see that. I could see her having a very hard time broaching that conversation because she would want to make absolutely sure that they were a wizard. She wouldn't dare bring this up to another muggle. So I think that'd be very hard for her to even start that conversation. Yeah. Given her policy of like showing Harry that he's not important and not special. I think she would very much not want to associate with any or with other wizards or witches, because as soon as they found out who her nephew was, they would want to meet him. And, you know, it would be all this undue attention that goes straight up against her sort of beliefs. Next voicemail is from Leary. Hi guys. My name is Leary and I have a question for you. The way the dialogue and the inner monologue and all the way the way they act the kids act in the books harry hermione ron all of the kids it seems very mature to me it seems like they are not actually 12 13 14 year old kids as they are supposed to be it seems to me as if they are way older the way they act the way everything is laid out it just doesn't make sense to me that these are kids i look at my brother at my younger brother and i look at myself at that age and i don't i don't remember having those complex thoughts i don't see how it makes sense that those kids are acting so mature. I would love to hear your thoughts about it. it it's really something I've been thinking about for a very long time, and I don't think you, you guys talked about it in your previ- previous episodes. Thank you so, so much. I love your podcast, and it makes my day better every time. Thanks, Leary. Well, I was that mature when I was young. You were not. No, I, that's a very, <laughs> very good point. And I think as we read these books... Even as we discuss them here, I think we forget that they are kids. I, d- I think I do all the time. Andrew, and yeah. you and I read the books as kids. Mm-hmm. So if we reflect on that, did you feel like you were reading about kids when you were a kid? Or did you feel like the characters were older? 
I honestly can't remember. How did you feel? I felt like I was reading about other kids. But in retrospect, they are definitely quite mature. Yeah, I mean, I I remember when book five came out, like I was 15 and Harry was 15. Um, And it felt like, although that book is so hard to tell because he's so angry all the time and I was not as angry. But for the most part, it felt like kids. But looking back, when you see everything that Harry did and you're like, wow, he was like 13 when that happened, like I would have just been crushed. Like Mm -hmm. lay in a field and the Dementors would just swore me because my God, my goodness, like 13. Yeah. So it is pretty crazy. It's also possible that it's due to the author as well. Just the fact that you have an adult that's writing the series. And so naturally some of these younger characters are going to come across as being more mature than they maybe would otherwise be if the book was written by somebody who's a little bit younger. That's fair. Yeah, something that I really like about these stories and the way that younger characters are portrayed is that it doesn't infantilize children. I think that culturally, we have a tendency to like baby talk kids and Mm -hmm. treat them like they can't understand complex concepts. Um, so maybe these, these kids read a little more adult, you know, to Micah's point, they're written by an adult, but I think that it's one of the things that makes these stories great is that we're not talking down to kids. Right. They're also not six, seven, eight years old. They're 11, 12, 13. So when I read the series, I never felt like they were too mature. But again, I didn't read the series when I was growing up. Maybe if I did that, I would have had a bit of a different perspective. I think it'd be interesting to reread the books and have at the front of your mind the entire time, you know, they are 12 here, they are 11 here, they're 13 here. And when you keep that in mind, I wonder if your perspective changes, maybe not much, but it's just something that moves to the back of your head, I think when we're not hit over the head with how young they are, to Laura's point. Except for, of course, all of the information being withheld from Harry. They treated him like a baby in that regard. (laughs) (laughs) I will say um, in the Discord, Justin is bringing up a good point, which is that they're all at school on their own, which is different. Oh, yeah. A lot of people, like if you didn't go to boarding school, probably your first experience being on your own was... When you were in your late teens, right? Right. Good point. So I think something like that probably forces you to mature a little faster. Yeah. And as the reader, you don't see mom picking them up in the minivan. You don't see dad yelling at them for playing video games too late at night, for sneaking out, for checking out Fluffy. Yeah. The parents take out, they're sitting way in the back. You do see moments of immaturity though. Yeah. 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 Draco, Ron, Neville. They're definitely- times in the series where their age shines through. Oh, yeah. Hermione sure. even regresses in Half-Blood Prince a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right. Next voicemail is from Eleanor. Hi, everyone. I've been listening since the beginning of the first quarantine, and I've quickly become a huge fan of your discussions every week. I love listening back to the most shocking moments in fandom history during episode 519 and reminiscing on some of the most iconic times. However, I'm 19, and during the period of time when the books were being released and the fandom was anticipating the final books of the series, I was still in elementary school and not active online in the discussion for predicting what the fandom thought might be coming next. 
I was wondering if you guys could discuss some fan theories at the time and how you guys thought the story was going to end, and even theories for earlier books like Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince. Thanks so much for putting out such a great show every week, and I can't wait to be a listener for years to come. Aww. Is Eleanor a podcaster? Because that sounded like a really good microphone. That's I was shook. Microphone. I was like, Eleanor has some great audio quality. <laughs> well, that's a really good mic on that phone. The one I always come back to is, was Harry a Horcrux? That just like was so hotly debated at the time. There were like fights, real fights in the fandom between some particular people. People were hell bent with their theories. Of course, there was also the debates over who was going to live or die if Sirius would come back, stuff like that. Wasn't there one that Dumbledore and Snape and I'm forgetting who the third person was were one of them represented each of the Deathly Hallows or Harry or something like that? I don't remember that, but that wouldn't surprise me. Probably. Probably. (laughs) There was like Dumbledore as death or Snape or something. I think that one got the author's attention itself. There were just there were so many interesting theories like when you, you know, you turn a corner on any of the other Harry Potter fan sites and there was a major theory being touted in the discussion. And it was uh, definitely a very full, very ripe time for, I'm trying to think of what to compare it to. It was like basically going on TikTok and you open up TikTok and there's all this stuff going on in any different category. There's a video for it was like that, but with only Harry Potter topic and it was any old theory. And like most of the people were very good at explaining why they thought something might be a certain way. And it was very captivating. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I remember getting lost in the editorial section of MuggleNet. That's really the first area that I dug into on the site. And I would come back all the time to read the theories that those writers had about what was coming. Because I think at the time, Half-Blood Prince had just come out. So we only had one book left. But I couldn't imagine doing this podcast, you know, with like three books left to go. That would be crazy. All the theories that would be out there. It really would. Um, I will say for myself, I was convinced, and I know I've talked about this in more recent episodes, but I was convinced that we were going back to the Department of Mysteries. It just felt oh, like yeah. there was so much left up in the air about that and so much information about the building blocks of magic that was teased at the end of Order of the Phoenix, I was absolutely convinced that that was going to be a major part of book seven, that some kind of final confrontation might take place there, that the veil was going to be a big part of it and like never went back there. Yeah. Um, I also remember being convinced. It was like, Final battle's not going to happen at Hogwarts. That's so predictable. And then it (laughs) did. It absolutely did. But I liked it. I liked the way it was done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that huge battle in in book six. I'm so glad that movie six went to the burrow instead for their battle. Otherwise, it would have been too (laughs) repetitive. I figured it out, you guys. It's Voldemort, Snape, and Harry representing each of the three brothers. Oh, Voldemort echoes the story of the eldest brother who thinks he can defeat death with massive magical power, but he falls short because of his hubris. Snape represents the middle brother who's consumed by grief over a lost love, which is Harry's mom. And finally, the youngest brother is a representation of Harry who manages to hide from death for a long time before willingly going and embracing his own demise. Wow. 
And in that parable, Dumbledore himself is death. And remember, at a certain point, Dumbledore possessed each of the Hallows. Mm. You know, in doing research for the show over the past year in particular, I have found it difficult to find the theories, the speculation that was going on in 2006, 2007. I, th- I feel like MuggleNet did have a theories page, and you can find it on the Wayback Machine, but that stuff... Outside of the Wayback Machine, it's pretty hard to find. The Wayback Machine, for anybody who doesn't know, takes you back in time to a certain date at any website you want, really. And I would love to see fan sites bring those old theory pages back just for time capsule purposes, just to because it is fun to, to, to look at what we were speculating over at the time. And of course, you can listen to early MuggleCast episodes to find stuff like that. But it would be easier if there was like this master list of theories that we were kicking around on the big on the big fan sites back in the day. It makes me think of I'm an Apple nerd. A couple of Mac websites will do these like rumor reviews after big Apple events to see who got rumors right and who got rumors wrong. It could have been something like that, where we're like, okay, here's all the theories that were out there pre-book seven, and here's which ones were right, here's which ones were wrong. Not to shame anybody, it's just interesting to look at. Definitely. You know, to that point, I would I would just say for Eleanor, like go go on the Wayback Machine. Like check it out. Go to MuggleNet. And just type in in your category, like in, on the calendar, like 2006, mm-hmm. let's say, and pick a page, you know, any kind of page like theories. It's at archive.org. And that's what it is. And also the editorial section, too, which I mentioned earlier, you could go and read all the past articles that were written because any number of those sections just had tons of theories. The other thing I thought about, too and not looking to promote a book, but wouldn't a lot of the theories be in what would happen in Harry Potter 7, which was MuggleNet's book? Yes. Back around that time, you could probably get it for cheap on Audible if you take a look. I ha- I haven't looked yet, but I'm assuming that it's probably a couple bucks on there. You mean Amazon? What'd I say? Audible. Audible? I was like, I was like you was guys there an audiobook version? Audio version? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually guys, recorded it. I did it. the audiobook. I never No, did you're kidding, yeah. Micah. No, I, I didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> now I'm uh, looking on no, Audible. Another big theory, though, that got a ton of discussion was around Snape's loyalty and whether or not Dumbledore wanted Snape to actually kill him. Was Snape good? That was Was actually – that was like a fun book release moment for Mm. Book 7 because I know a lot of bookstores when they were doing midnight release parties, they were giving out – were they bookmarks or like – little signs that were basically yeah. like Snape is good or Snape is evil. So people yeah, were like showing like their support stickers. for their position. Somebody yeah. who has given up on JK Rowling recently gave me her old ones. The Snape is good. Snape is bad. So I have some of those oh. now actually from borders. Well, yeah, it was a borders exclusive. It was called the great Snape debate. And it was, uh, yes. it was a book. It was, it was upside down. It was printed where, <laughs> one side and I think half all pages were printed upside down if you th- for like make the case that Snape was good. It was real nice. It was kind of gimmicky, but it was real nice. I would also say, you know, we referenced theories about deaths. There were also there was a ton of speculation about romantic pairings and who was ultimately going to end up together. And that caused some some real fights <laughs> between people, um, particularly Harry and Hermione shippers and Ron and Hermione shippers. Um, So that was definitely a thing. I feel like especially after book five, when Harry and Hermione were 
in the Forbidden Forest solo with Grop. I feel like there was a lot of um, the writing there that people really read into to support their theory that Harry and Hermione would end up together, which, of course, we know didn't happen. But, uh, yeah, that was... It seems obvious now when you look back on it who was going to end up together, but there was um, there were a lot of people convinced it was going to go the other way. Oh, speak Beth in the Discord brought up a great point. There was a website called DumbledoreIsNotDead.com. Yeah. There were a lot of people convinced that he was not dead. <laughs> yeah. That was a nice looking website. I feel like I bought yeah. DumbledoreIsNotGay.com as a parody. You did. Didn't I do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should make it clear that it was tongue in cheek. Yes. I should buy that again. <laughs> Unfortunately, DumbledoreIsNotDead.com is. Uh, no longer online, but yeah, I remember checking out checking out that site quite a bit. We should buy it. You sure. should redirect it to Harry Potter fan zone. <laughs> <laughs> All our sites redirect to Harry Potter fan zone. Okay, and we have one more voicemail from Franzi. Hey there, MuggleCast. It's Franzi from Germany. I just finished your episode about Deathly Hallows Part Two's anniversary, and I just wanted to tell you some personal anecdotes about this movie. I actually went to the London premiere in 2011. The trip was a present from my parents because I just finished school. And I remember when I stood in Trafalgar Square and everyone gave their speeches. Everyone, including me, was crying and I got hugged by a fellow crying fan next to me. Aww. We never met before this and it was such a nice fandom moment and um, I also wanted to tell you about a friend of mine who has only seen the movies and he messaged me after watching Deathly Hallows Part 2 and he was like I can't believe Snape is Harry's father <laughs> he got so confused by the Princess Tales scenes that he believed Snape was, Snape was Harry's dad I was just wondering what you guys might think about this peace and love peace and love <laughs> wow great oh voicemail um Wonderful. i don't have thoughts i'm speechless over that <laughs> that's really funny it, though yeah like, i don't think that's the only time that i've heard that where <laughs> folks who have just the casual moviegoer that have seen the harry potter films could think that snape was in fact harry's dad i think not just with the prince's tale but i think there's some like little hat tips to it throughout the course of the series where they're not obviously true, but, and I'm not remembering them right at this moment, but I don't see that as being so far fetched. Yeah, especially because the Prince's Tale scene is all about don't tell Harry this, don't tell Harry until the right time. If you mishear something, because again, there's like massive music going the blah, and like it's all British accents and everybody's muttering, I feel like you could very easily mishear that Snape was actually his dad. And it's like, does the boy not know? <laughs> you know, kind of. Just like Dumbledore and Snape talking about his his um, paternity. So, yeah, I, I think it's easy to kind of mistake. That sounds like a big mistake on the writer's part. I mean, they have to inform I think the Steve broader Clovis audience. Loves it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Loves chaos. I mean, I feel like this interpretation makes Snape leaving baby Harry there even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> you just remind me of her. I can't wow. I can't take you with me. I'm now rewatching all eight movies tonight, and in my head I'll be thinking about Snape being Harry's father, because that's really oh, funny. And then there were like those theories. People get really into it. Like if you say like that scene where Snape looks at Harry weirdly, like and says, like, 
people may think you're up to something. Then they add up the number of letters and like up to something. And so it's like 17. And it's like, if you find the prime number and then divide that by Harry's birth date, you get S-N-A-P-E, like, you know, stuff like that. Like people got really into like neat, almost like numerological explanations for certain fan theories. There was just no ceiling to it. Okay, that's it for voicemails. I wanted to start the email section with a little correction. Now, we were debating, we think we may have brought this up later in last week's episode, but just in case not, um, early in last week's episode, we were debating why the Longbottoms were tortured by Bellatrix and company, and a couple people wrote in to address this, to answer this for us. James said, the Longbottoms were tortured by the Death Eaters because they wanted info on the whereabouts of Voldemort after the Potter attack went wrong. He says, I would assume Voldemort's plan was to kill Neville after Harry. And Comet Chaser on Twitter added that the Death Eaters did this because they knew that the Longbottoms were Aurors, so they might have some info. Just in case we didn't make that clear later in last week's episode, there you go. And thanks to those who wrote in about that. Well, that, that's it. That's a good enough reason for me to have to go and reread Goblet of Fire. <laughs> yeah. We're allowed to make mistakes. I feel like I could definitely stand for a full series reread at this point it's been a while since i did one of those me too me too all right our next email comes from brian it's about the blood pact brian says i keep thinking that the blood pact between grindelwald and dumbledore is the reason for dumbledore discovering the 12 uses of dragon's blood he will somehow use this dragon's blood to break the blood pact and allow him to attack grindelwald that's interesting Blood breaking blood. I think it's as fair of an interpretation as anything at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the author has maybe in jest revealed a couple of the uses, and they've been very mundane things, nothing this advanced. And I also tried to look up when Dumbledore discovered the 12 uses, because I wanted to know if it was before or after the Fantastic Beasts timeline, and I couldn't really find an answer. So, yeah, this is a cool, this would be a cool tie-in to the original series. That's a, a heck of a thing to think about how many uses for, like, how many uses will constitute the destruction of the blood pack. Okay, next email from Yvonne concerning the Dumbledore's keeping Ariana secret. He says, people at Godric's Hollow didn't know about Ariana because they had moved towns. And he has a couple of quotes from book seven here. Kendra Dumbledore could not bear to remain in mold on the wold after her husband Percival's well-publicized arrest and imprisonment in Azkaban. She therefore decided to uproot the family and relocate to Godric's Hollow. And then the other quote is, like mold on the wold, <laughs> what a name, Godric's Hollow was home to a number of wizarding families, but as Kendra knew none of them, she would be spared the curiosity about her husband's crime she had faced in her former village. By repeatedly rebuffing the the friendly advances of her new wizarding neighbors, she soon ensured that her family was left well alone. So there you go. I get it, Kendra. (laughs) I I rebuff friendly advances from my neighbors, too. (laughs) (laughs) Laura told me she, the other day she's getting a ring doorbell, a ring video doorbell. That's going to oh. really help you rebuff the advances from your neighbors. Yeah, I just don't want to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me sound like a jerk. I have a couple of annoying neighbors. That's mm. what this is about. Interesting. It still seems strange, though, that not many people knew about Ariana, even after they moved. I understand 
we have to take the book at its word, but it's a little strange. I mean, I don't know how populated Godric Hollow really is at the end of the day, but if there were a series of like spells that were breaking and like charms that were going off and Ariana was having a very hard time in her condition, somebody who knows what magic sounds like or looks like or feels like would probably want to do the neighborly thing and help out. So it, it would have been, you know, Kendra would have had to go to great pains to hide Ariana for everybody. Certainly to the level which is mentioned in book seven that I think it's Muriel who says they didn't even know Ariana existed until her funeral. And I'm like, that is crazy. Yeah. And this next email comes from Courtney regarding the Dumbledore episode that we did. Hey, MuggleCast, I was listening to your latest podcast about analyzing Dumbledore and had a few theories I wanted to share. Number one, the blood pact. Y'all mentioned that you were hoping it wouldn't be a physical object preventing Dumbledore from fighting Grindelwald, but rather his feelings toward him that was just holding him back. Why can't it be both? Dumbledore says that he might be able to break the pact, but what if breaking it means that he truly has to break that relationship? Mm. I think Albus still very much loves him, and to break the blood pact will require breaking his own heart. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think about how love is symbolized by trinkets all the time, like wedding bands and jewelry. We give all that stuff, so that's real cool. Uh, Point number two, obscuruses grow in the absence of love. Shouldn't Harry be an obscurial? If anyone grew up with the absence of love, it was him, constantly punished for magic he couldn't control or understand, forced to live in abysmal conditions, never shown any love or affection at all. He's the poster child for obscurials, and now I'm upset about the plot hole. Actually, this was like right when Fantastic Beasts came out. The biggest theory was, oh my gosh, you know, why was Harry or was Harry an obscurial? And J.K. Rowling herself explained, I'll just summarize real quick, while Vernon and Petunia had a confused hope that if they were nasty enough to Harry, his strange abilities might somehow evaporate, they never taught him to be ashamed or afraid of magic. So it's the don't do magic that um, forces you to develop an obscurial. And Harry didn't. Makes sense. And final point here, Travers. It is likely that his future lineage is in fact the same Travers that are Death Eaters, but there's no reason to rule out he isn't on Grindelwald's side now. He is responsible for putting Dumbledore on magic house arrest, constantly monitoring any magic that he performs. I think he's preventing, or at least trying to prevent, Dumbledore from making any moves on Grindelwald's orders and disguising it. Mm. He also sent all of his orders to Grindelwald's rally, effectively sentencing them all to death. So convenient. Hmm. I know what y'all think. Love the show. I, I really like that, actually. And it's not something that I thought about. Um, but certainly we've seen those on the side of evil infiltrate the ministry in the Harry Potter series. So why not in the Fantastic Beast series? And who better than somebody like Travers, especially knowing that his family does in fact get involved with the Death Eaters and Voldemort uh, later on could be a good parallel to Kingsley uh, because isn't Kingsley the head of the magical law enforcement department or basically like when the order members in the Harry Potter books throw the search for Sirius Black because they're all good guys and they're all on the same side. Travers could be doing the same. It could be a neat, neat little parallel between what you just said, Mike, of having bad guys at the ministry kind of throwing it for Grindelwald. And we do see Grindelwald has people on the inside. I forget the character's name, but he has like that little meeting in the um, 
like by the water. It's, it, oh, it's yeah. with oh, yeah. the guy who's tracking Credence. Yeah. Yeah, right. So he's definitely got some moles in mm. the ministry. All right. The next email comes from Julian talking about Dumbledore's family and Phoenix's. He says, hi, guys and gal. Long time, maybe the first time, I forget. I started listening in 2006 and stopped maybe a year after Deathly Hallows came out. Then this pandemic hit and I started listening to your podcast again to get away from a lot of things. It rekindled a lot of love for the Potter series and I probably caught up on about 300 episodes in the meantime. Thanks for an amazing job. Welcome back. uh, Yeah, for listening to us for that long. Uh, Now to the meat and potatoes, the most important. Through all of the episodes and movies, I've been hearing about Fox coming to a Dumbledore in need. BS, I tell you. Pure BS. (laughs) Too simple. (laughs) I don't believe Grindelwald for one second. He is manipulating. I have met and worked with manipulators, and this is how they work. (laughs) Saying anything to make the people around them do their bidding. I am assuming since Dumbledore is as famous as he is, as renowned as he is, so is the fact that he has Fox. I mean, who wouldn't know about the story of an amazing wizard and his legendary animal companion, and how easy it would be for Grindelwald to manipulate this information to Credence? What is a phoenix? It's a fantastic beast that obtains new life by arising from the ashes of its predecessor. Now, we all know that Dumbledore in his youth was tempted by the darker side of the wizarding world. He planned and plotted and hunted for hollows with his new buddy Grindelwald, for the greater good. When Aberforth finally confronted Grindelwald, he opened Albus's eyes to who he was dealing with. And with that duel, the aftermath was devastating. The death of Ariana, the loss of even more confidence from his brother, the loss of what was probably the love of his life, all burning around him, an all-consuming flame that burned Albus to nothing. And from that, he arose again, a new man, a new mission, a new outlook. And this is when I think Fox came to him. The fall of such a powerful young man to becoming nothing, Fox came to him to build him anew. That's what I think. Uh, love the show. Please do chapter by chapter again, like all over again with your older age. <laughs> I think you'll probably read the books a bit differently. And also, for goodness sake, make sure Laura is there. The rest of you don't have as much sense as she does. Put together. <laughs> he, he says he's joking, but I don't think he is. No. Well, Look at this, Laura. <laughs> glowing review. I know. Thank you for the endorsement. My goodness. <laughs> well, um, yeah, let's hear what Laura has to say. I'm sure she has yeah. a great thought. <laughs> I'm sure Julian wants to hear no. what she has to say. So <laughs> I I actually really like this. I remember before we talked about the possibility that Grindelwald could absolutely be manipulating Credence in this moment. And what does Credence want most in the world? He wants to know that he matters. He wants to know that he's special because he's had this sense that there's something different about him his entire life. So he's predisposed to want to believe something like this. The only way that this reveal at the end of Crimes of of Grindelwald uh, plays for me well is if it's uh, a manipulation yeah, and there's more to it, and it's not just like secret Dumbledore brother. I can't. I want to expand on what Julian was saying and take this theory further. What if Credence does get a phoenix of his own after all, because of what he goes through? Like Albus, he's going through very difficult times as well. His life has been burned down to nothing, 
And now he's arising again, a new man, a new mission, a new outlook, just like Julian said about Albus. It would be beautiful. It would be poetic if a phoenix did come to him after all. Yes, Grindelwald is still manipulating him. But what if a phoenix comes to him after all? towards the end of movie three or towards the end of the series, whether or not he's a Dumbledore. And then young Albus Dumbledore can say, look at this. A phoenix can come to anyone who's in need. Right. Yeah. If like as a result of all of Grindelwald's manipulation, the upshot of it is that Credence ends up getting the phoenix anyway. Right. That would be kind of cool. Yeah. Being broken. And then he'll see the light eventually. Unless he dies in the series, which I think is very much possible, too. I think that's very likely. Right. And I just think, though, that if Credence were to have a phoenix come to him, it probably would have happened before Crimes of Grindelwald. I mean, think about how he was treated. Talk about being in a moment of of need. Mm. The bare bones treated him horribly. <sighs> yeah. And, and I forget when that little bird shows up when he's on the roof. I can't remember if it's before or after Grindelwald shows up on the roof to talk to him, but it's not like it showed up for him in a moment of need. It kind of just came out of Grindelwald's hand. (laughs) So at least in the end scene. Yeah. I remember speculating that whether or not that's just like something else that's been transfigured into a phoenix or, you know, when it's, because he accelerates its growth a little bit too, to cause it to have a burning day. Yeah. Right. Which, yeah, it doesn't seem very natural. All right, Julian, thanks for that. We have a couple more emails to get to and then a game. But first, let's hear from this week's sponsor, Me Undies. Me Undies makes the softest undies in fun prints to help you feel comfortable at your core so you can feel ready to take on anything. They're the type of undies that you try once and you immediately wonder where they've been all your life. That's exactly how I felt. Cloud-like comfort and countless fun designs are in your future when you order these. You'll be like me, you'll try them once, and you'll never want anything else again. MeUndies designs limited edition prints all the time so you can express yourself every single day. Building your undie collection and picking out which lucky pair gets to meet your butt for the day has never been so fun. Choose prints with corgis, chicken nuggets, your zodiac sign, goofy puns, and more. MeUndies also releases collabs with some pretty big names like the Rolling Stones and the new movie Space Jam, A New Legacy. But you have to grab them fast because once they're gone, they're gone for good. MeUndies has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has their problem-free philosophy. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no questions. To get 15% off your first order, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast. That's MeUndies.com slash MuggleCast. All right, our next email comes from Kate, and it's about Snape's home and his relationship with Lily. Kate says, I've been re-listening to the audiobooks and had a couple of questions pop up that I'm unsure if you have ever if you have ever discussed regarding Severus Snape. The first one came when I was listening to my favorite book, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, in Chapter 2, Spinner's End. Bellatrix comments how Snape lives in a filthy muggle area. This seemed odd for someone who closely followed Lord Voldemort. Why would he live in a muggle area? 
Once I listened to Harry Potter in the Deathly Hallows, I realized this is likely his childhood home that he is in, where he met Lily. While I can come up with reasons like his childhood with Lily were his best memories and he wanted to be close to her in that way, or simply that it was his family home, it is still curious that a close and trusted follower of Voldemort, groomed to think of themselves as better than muggles, would choose to live in a muggle area. The second question that arose was during Snape's memories at the end of Book 7. It appears as though Severus and Lily became friends before they entered school at Hogwarts and remained friends at least through their fifth year. They would have been known to be friends to their peers, so the question arose, why in Dumbledore's or Lupin's attempts to assure Harry of Professor Snape's trustworthiness did no one mention to Harry that he and Harry's mother were childhood friends for at least five years? Not only at school, but when they went home during the summer breaks, they had to have spent summers hanging out together as none of their other friends were mentioned to have lived in this muggle area. I particularly wonder why Lupin never said anything when Harry was speaking to him about his father's childhood relationship with Snape. Hey, Harry. Yeah, your dad and Snape hated each other, but your mother was good friends with him. They grew up in the same town. (laughs) I would love to hear your thoughts or if you've discussed these questions previously to know which episodes to listen to. I listened way back when podcasts were first a thing, then couldn't listen for years. So I missed quite a few episodes in the middle there. Thanks for making a quality podcast. Yeah, I think Lily and Snape's friendship was just purposely withheld because... It's it's a plot device to have Harry uh, not liking Snape, despising Snape. Of course, the other way, the other thing to consider is that Snape really did despise Harry in the books. I mean, he treats him terribly. So even if Harry did have this information, not everything would have changed because Snape still treated him like a piece of crap. And honestly, if Harry went to Snape and said, hey, you and my mom used to hang out. Why do you treat me like crap? That would probably make Snape hate Harry even more. Yeah, he would say, get out. Like, don't yeah, ask questions. You know too get much. Out. Yeah. I kind of, yeah. I tend to think with regard to um, the question about why Harry would have never been in the know about Snape's friendship with Lily. I believe that that was part of what Snape asked Dumbledore to keep confidential. I mean, Snape, I mean, I'm thinking of the movie dialogue, but I know that in the book it was somewhat similar where Snape was like, no one can know about this. Right. And I feel like that was all encompassing of him protecting Harry. And if Harry knew that Snape was protecting him, then that would raise questions about like, well, why are you protecting me? Which would lead like all paths lead to Lily (laughs) in that case. And I don't think Snape wanted anyone to know. And I feel like Lupin, as a character, is mature enough to recognize that or mature enough to not try and create further conflict between Harry and Snape. But I got to say, I don't think Sirius is mature enough to do that. No, and it's possible Dumbledore went after that conversation with Snape in A Prince's Tale and made all these side agreements where everyone else had to promise they wouldn't tell Harry one day that Snape and Lily were friends. But it seems unlikely, especially because Sirius was in jail the whole time. So, Laura, to answer your question about the memory revealing if Snape asked Dumbledore to not reveal the friendship, I'm reading on the lexicon, the promise was about 
the unrequited love. So not so much the the friendship. So that maybe could have been addressed unless there's something else that I'm missing. Mm. Yeah, no, I don't think so. But I have a feeling that Snape's intention behind that was to not reveal any, any. connection Fair. to Lily. Because, I mean, why else would he essentially sacrifice his, you know, the prime of his life, his 30s, right? Mm. I know in the movies he's older, but <laughs> I mean, he's essentially giving up this sort of like second chance at life that he gets after the war. I mean, he had he could have wiped the slate clean and moved on, but he gave that up to save Harry's life. And ultimately he dies for it. And we can see in book seven that Snape is ultimately not comfortable with Harry knowing about that relationship until he's like, yeah, I'm about to dip out here. So now you can know. (laughs) It's a choice that he I makes. loved your mom. He's like, yeah, I'm about to dip out. You can have these now. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Regarding the first question uh, that Kate sent in about Snape living in his in his home, a couple of things here. There's not enough purebloods or wizarding settlements. In fact, Godric's Hollow is like either the first one or the only one in Hogsmeade. Um, so you have to live with Muggles. You have to absolutely live as a wizard, mostly among among Muggles, unless you have like a manor like we see the Malfoys having. Or the Lovegoods are technically within a muggle town, but it's rural. Um, So there's really no getting around growing up in a, quote, filthy muggle town, I'm sure. Plenty of the other pureblood Death Eaters live in either metropolitan areas or they're just surrounded by muggles. I think that's just unavoidable. Um, And then the other thing is, you know, it's his dad was a muggle. Snape's dad was a muggle and his mom was a witch. and I feel like it is weird to surround yourself in the childhood home that you have many negative memories too, but it is possible it's one of the things his dad left him in the will. And maybe it's just one of his only like possessions. It's dark and brooding like Snape wants to be. I think maybe Snape is not allowing himself to be happy and wants to be miserable. So he houses himself there. Right. I don't think Snape needs to submit paperwork to Voldemort. It's not like he's getting, you know, a paycheck at the end of every month and Snape or Voldemort needs to know where Snape lives. Like I I don't think Snape really cares a whole lot at the end of the day either. I mean, he's able to dupe Voldemort into thinking that he is actually on his side. I don't think Voldemort's really going to care a whole heck of a lot where Snape lives at the end of the day as long as he's doing his job. So um and then the second question, I would just add on to what you guys were talking about before. I don't think that Harry knowing would have broken the ice at all between him and Snape. It may have even made things worse. Because if I were Harry, I'd be like, okay, well, you were in love with my mom. You guys were good friends growing up. Why are you such a bleep to me again? Right. Like, I'm not right. following. Yeah. And Snape would be humiliated too. Yeah, definitely. And now, so y'all got me reading about the prince's tale again. I forgot this. Snape as Dumbledore did not tell Harry that Snape was his father. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't tell Franzi. It's in, it's in the script book of Deathly Hallows part two. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this next email is from Pamela about Slytherin's bias and the Lockett Horcrux. 
I was rewatching some of the movies recently, and while Slytherins are often portrayed as racist, do you think the Sorting Hat was originally created free from the bias that Salazar himself had towards those not of pure blood? In the creation of the Chamber of Secrets, it almost seems as if that bias manifested later, though that might not be the case. So let's address that one first. Uh, Again, I I did a little research into this one. The exact wordage is that the Sorting Hat consists of their various, of the four founders' intelligence. So it's like an, it's an AI. Yeah. The Sorting Hat is an AI. Yeah. If it's adopting their minds, then presumably there would be some of those sensibilities carried over. It sounds like there's inherent bias regardless, because if you think about the qualities that each house is representative of, you know, when the sorting hat goes through and names all of the different houses, it lists the qualities and that in and of itself is biased. Like if you're only taking the most courageous for Gryffindor, Mm. that's a bias towards people who tend to be a little bit braver, right? And then you could go through all the rest. So it would be unfortunate though, if the bias of pure blood mania is a part (laughs) of the sorting hat putting students into Slytherin, knowing that they would grow to be those types of individuals. You would do well in Slytherin, (laughs) where all the bigots are. My impression was that the sorting hat was made only after the, he would like, my impression was the sorting hat was put in charge only after all the founders were no longer at Hogwarts. The sorting hat himself says like, old Gryffindor plucked me off his head and made me the, you know, person in charge. But if that is the case, if the founders themselves sorted, um, because it says they took those that just that were most like them into each of their homes, then there was probably a period of time where they were sorting people that were least like them into Slytherin's house. And like the bias just, it's turtles all the way down. So, um, but definitely by that point, Slytherin would have left. There would have been that parting of the ways and Slytherin would have left Hogwarts. So I don't think, I think the sorting hat was probably always biased. Yeah. I just realized the sorting hat probably needs therapy. Can you imagine having four different personalities kicking around? Yeah. I feel bad for it. Yeah. Well, that's all sad now that I'm thinking about that. So (laughs) that's a bummer. Not just Laura's idea, but what else is being discussed here? Mm. And this other point from Pamela on the locket Horcrux. This is just pure speculation, but since we know the locket was in the desk at Grimwald Place, what would have happened if Harry had noticed the snake on the front and asked it to open in parcel tongue? I feel like unknowingly unleashing a bit of Voldemort's soul on the world might be slightly horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. That would have been yeah. too easy, though, right? Surely yeah. Voldemort would lock it down. Also, Harry's not that observant. Yeah. Wow. Like, I feel like this... I mean, wow. it's a theme. Think about mm-hmm. how many things we see throughout the books that later on we're like, oh, that was that thing. Well, it's it's right? not just Harry. Everybody takes turns trying to open the the necklace that day in Grimald Place. That's true. And so none of them seem to be like, oh, there's a snake on it. You know, kind of a, a thing. Well, I mean, given that Ron can also speak parcel tongue, they're lucky that he didn't try <laughs> oh, to know. They're lucky crux. nobody asked Ron to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, but Moody's in the house. He's actually an Auror. I don't know if Kingsley's there at the time or if he's introduced later. 
but um there's like i do think that it would have been a way different scene than what we see in the forest when they do open the locket because that's after the horcrux has been growing on a steady diet of ron's insecurities and all basically all of the trio's fears and so if it had been neglected for decades or whatever um you know since creature took the locket then if they had opened it right away and figured out how to do it the whatever appeared inside would have been pretty weak and probably very easy to kill yeah all right next email this one comes from alex did the movies improve upon the books the books are much better than the movies even though both are great in their own way however after realizing that i preferred hedwig's movie death to her book death I wondered if the panel thinks there are any other good changes slash additions that the movies made. Here's one more I can think of. Yep, this is one I was going to mention. Slughorn's story about the fish that Lily made for him in Half-Blood Prince. The story (laughs) and Harry's response is the most powerful dramatic scene in the film series for me. I think it's incredible the extent to which the source material is elevated here. Yeah, that was super heartfelt. Yeah, it was beautiful. And Alex asks, do you guys have any others? I always, yeah, so I mean, Deathly Hallows Part 2 is most fresh in my mind after our discussion a couple of weeks ago. So I'll say I really do feel like the final battle, other than the weird Harry Voldemort pre-duel fight, um, was very good. I loved how Neville came in clutch at the very end, whereas that's not uh, right before Harry defeated Voldemort. That's not back to back in the book, right? That's that's at a different point. Yeah. I like how the final moments, those two key moments occur back to back. I liked um, the portrayal of the tale of the three brothers or in Tales of Beetle the Bard. Um, I just thought that that was a really creative way to uh, sort of visually represent the story while Hermione was narrating. Um, they could have gone real basic and just kind of had them all sitting in a room listening and exchanging confused looks um, over the table. But I thought that the way they portrayed it and the animation uh, was just so beautiful. Um, It really captured me. It captured my imagination when I was watching it. Like it was one of those things that I was just like, okay, like I'm in, I feel very, um, you know, attentive while I'm watching this. So yeah, I think that that is something they did really well. I, I'll I'll agree with that with you on that uh, animation. That was actually just a caption contest image recently with Zeno, like, and the and the trio. And uh, one of the winning captions was, "Hey, uh, Ron says, why did things just become animated for three minutes? <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't feel like it was <laughs> jarring, but you can see how like some people might. But I tend to agree with decisions like that. And movie five, like. I tend to agree with every montage, everything they do to smooth the story out and simplify the longest book. Um, I tend to like not have any issues with it all, mysteriously, considering I hate that when they do it in movie four and three. Um, but yeah, so move, all of movie five would be my answer. Yeah, I, I would say the opening of Half-Blood Prince. I was disappointed, obviously, that we didn't get the other minister scene, but I think the fact that it brings the wizarding world and what's going on there right into the real world right at the very start of the movie was an, uh, something that i thought they did a good job with um where you know they have like those people looking out of the the office building and then the death eaters break that 
uh, suspension bridge and they eventually make their way into uh, Diagon Alley, but it was just very cool kind of bringing the two worlds together. The other thing that I'm thinking about in Deathly Hallows would a very controversial scene, but the dance scene uh, between Harry and Hermione, <laughs> mm. I actually didn't mind it. I, I think it just showed the fact like that that could have always been a possibility. Yeah. And you didn't quite know what was going to happen in that moment between the two of them. And I know there were a lot of people who were really pissed that it was in there, but yeah. Eh, in hindsight, really. it was kind of like a goodbye to what could have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll agree with that. No, I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about that scene, but I agree. I think sort of like if it in a vacuum, the scene is just really well done. I think it honestly speaks more to the actor's chemistry than it does to the chemistry of those two characters. But that's um, definitely that's up fair. for interpretation. It's time for our uh, throwback email. We do one of these uh, every time we do a Muggle Mail episode. This is coming from all the way back in August of 2007. It's from Louise from Brisbane, Australia. And she was 15 at the time. (laughs) I was just wondering if anyone picked up on this parallel that I thought of while reading Deathly Hallows. I think that there was a lot of references to Nazism and the Holocaust in the book. Now, the reason why I chose this particular email was because um, we're starting up a lot of our discussions around the crimes of Grindelwald and the character discussions. We just did one on Dumbledore. We have another one coming up next month in August. And we know the direction of the series is likely going to take us uh, to Germany uh, at some point and World War II will be a factor. So here are some of the things that Louise came up with. Um, Grindelwald's sign and the Deathly Hallows symbol Um, comparing it to the Nazi swastika. The Deathly Hallows symbol is both a sign of a dictator-like figure and a traditional image from a legend, just like the swastika is a Nazi symbol and also backwards is a holy symbol for good luck. Grindelwald's camp, where he was later interned, um, sounds very much like a Nazi concentration camp. It's uh, Nurmengard. Uh, undesirables in the rounding up of Muggleborns, um, very similar to how the Jews were rounded up during the Holocaust. All those with Muggle grandparents were considered dirty, much like the Nazi view on Jewish blood. And now come to think of it, the Death Eaters who had infiltrated the highest posts in the Ministry of Magic, we were just talking about Travers earlier, were rather like Hitler's right-hand men um, who controlled the Gestapo, the police, and the German schools. Uh, The propaganda, which was being produced by the Ministry of Magic, in which Harry saw outside Umbridge's office, reminds me of Nazi propaganda. Also, Voldemort and company kept the people quiet by instilling fear in the community, much like the Nazis. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how some of these things play themselves out in the upcoming Fantastic Beast movies, especially these references here that uh, Louise has um, to to Grindelwald um, and the Deathly Hallows. Yeah. And as we know now, I don't know if we knew back at the time that she wrote in with this, Grindelwald's rise and the Holocaust were happening roughly around the same time. Right. So. And what did 
Voldemort learn from that that he then later uses during the Harry Potter series. Yeah. So thank you, Louise, for writing in all those years ago. <laughs> Great We're sorry it took us this long for us to you better uh, late than never. get back to you. And don't worry, listeners, we're not ending the episode on the Holocaust. We're going to play a game <laughs> no. today. Who said it? This was actually created by one of our listeners and a supporter on our Patreon, Mike P. He just he just sent us this game out of the blue. Oh. How it works is simple. I will read a quote from one of our previous episodes. Most of these were mostly uh, pre-book seven. And you just have to guess who said it. Okay. So here's the first one, and this was from an episode in which uh, we're talking about Ron being the most clueless guy in the history of dating for six books. (laughs) Eric says, I don't think Ron is boyfriend material in certain ways. He is for Hermione, and I think that's why. I mean, I think if it's Hermione, and then somebody says, no, as of right now, Ron, okay, if I were Hermione, he would drive me up a tree. He would absolutely drive me insane. I would want to strangle him. And I think that book six completely brought that across. Who said it? You all can guess. So not Eric. <laughs> not <laughs> not Eric. Eric. Unless I was unless I'm... I was that into talking that I talked to myself in those episodes. That's crazy. I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it was Jamie. Yeah. I was thinking that too. The obvious choice is Laura because she's putting herself in Hermione's shoes very vocally. But I would say Laura or Jamie. Yeah, it kind of sounds like me, but at the same time, I've always been a fan of Ron, so I'm a little confused. (laughs) All right. Well, actually, it was you, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, as soon as I heard that, I would absolutely strangle him. I was like, that sounds like me. (laughs) It sounds like something Jamie would say, though, too. Yeah, maybe. Okay, so this next one was on who was going to die in book seven. And the person says, listen, there's one significant character that dies in, well, in the past two books. Sirius was very important to Harry, and he died in book five. Dumbledore was very important to Harry, and he died in book six. Now, wouldn't it make sense that the only other really important character besides Ron and Hermione is Hagrid, right? Is there anyone else that is really important to Harry, like a mentor? Who said it? Micah. I think this was was Micah. This was me, I think. (laughs) Eric? (laughs) Who am I to argue with uh, the other two? Well, (laughs) unfortunately, it was my brilliance. Y'all are wrong. I know. I was so smart. I mean, I got the, it was an incorrect prediction, (laughs) but I sound like Micah. I take it as a compliment. Thank you. You should. (laughs) All right. This next one. So we were reminiscing on who was originally going to be on MuggleCast. And Laura says, yeah, and I remember it wasn't even, I don't even think it was this crew of people that were going to be on it originally. And then someone says, oh, no, definitely not. I wasn't going to be on originally. (laughs) (laughs) Who said it? That could could fit either Micah or myself easily, I want to say. Because Micah, you wrote in about like doing news segments, you weren't thinking of being a full host. I was pulled out of obscurity while I was driving to work one day by Ben. I'm going to guess Micah. I'm going to guess you, Eric. It can be anybody outside of these four, though, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to go with Kevin. Micah was right. It was Kevin. Yeah. Poor Kevin. 
I wasn't going to be on originally. (laughs) I knew you were going to go into an impression. All right. Next one. Short and sweet. Micah says, I haven't seen Order of the Phoenix. This person says, are you kidding? Is this a big joke? That's Jamie. Jamie. It's yeah. I think it's me. I almost did my British accent. I had to stop myself. (laughs) Are you kidding? Is this a big joke? Yeah, that was Jamie. I wanted to include this one, though, because I forget this. Micah, you hadn't seen the movie like months after it came out. What was the story? Is that from when we did Enlightening? Because I don't think I had seen it when we were doing Enlightening. I don't know if you guys had had the opportunity to go see it at like a premiere. But why would Jamie say, is this a big joke? (laughs) (laughs) I vaguely remember you taking forever to see a movie. You might be right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I don't remember the reasoning behind it, though. (laughs) Honestly. Maybe Michael was just left out. He he couldn't see it with us. So he's like, well, why should I see it at all? (laughs) But didn't you guys see it before Enlightening? A couple of you had. Maybe. Right. You had probably been to the New York premiere or to. I went to the L.A. premiere. Yeah. We were at the L.A. premiere. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Anyway, it was episode 114. I had heard David Yates was producing. So I was like, I don't want to see it. (laughs) All right. Next one. So on Dumbledore and the Mirror of Erised reveal in book seven, Kevin says, you never realized he saw exactly what Harry saw. He saw his family. And then someone says that was one of the coolest moments in the book, in my opinion. So coolest moment in book seven, the Mirror of Erised reveal. Um, yeah, I, I could see myself saying that. Laura, Micah? I'll go with that. Okay. I'll agree. That's right. It was Eric. Woo. Yes. All right. One more. Yeah. yeah. Why not? One more. Okay, so this one was on Fred's death in book seven. Someone said, I think in one of the previous episodes, I said that I thought one of them, I actually thought both of them were going to die based off of that whole mention of Molly's brothers dying in the previous war and them having similar initials. So who made that prediction? There you go, Eleanor. There's a fan theory. (laughs) Yeah. That was really good. Gideon and Fabian both died in the first war. Fred and George mirrored both die in the second war. What a great idea. Based on that, I'm thinking it was probably you, Eric. <laughs> I think it was you, Laura. Really? I was thinking I either do. you or Kevin. I'm mm. going to say Laura. Maybe it was Mikey B. Well, Micah, it was actually you. <laughs> Everyone was wrong. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, that was a good one to end it on since you all were wrong yeah. and guessing different answers. <laughs> yeah. That was fun. So that's how we play Who Said It? And thanks, Mike, for coming up with that game. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. I paid like $5 for that well, effect. Should... I got to get some use out of it <laughs> years ago. I was going to say we could crowdsource we could crowdsource the intro to that segment by having all of our people send in like who said it? <laughs> who, 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 who? We put it all together and then it's a crowd. That would be fun. Like a game show. All right. Speaking of games, yeah. It is time for the weekly quizich. Last week's question, right after impersonating Neville Longbottom during his ride on the night bus in year three, Harry bumps into the real Neville outside Flourish and Blots. What is Neville looking for at this moment? Apart from the carrot got graded, who says this doesn't happen or is something wrong with my copy, (laughs) or is this a test? I actually don't know, but it is one of those blink and you'll miss it moments from book three. The correct answer is that Neville is searching for his book list and Augusta is chastising him. Mm. So 
course she is. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, it's the first of another list at least that he loses in Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> That's actually a good bit yeah. of foreshadowing. Mm. Yeah. Good bit of foreshadowing. So correct answer again was his book list and correct answers were submitted by Kim Sokjin, Aslana Kadavra, Enola, Irene, Bort Voldemort, Slithered In, Caught Spattergroit, Countess Fettuccini, Legalized Gillyweed, Plant-Based Luna, a locked packet of Drupal's Best Blowing Gum, and Sorry Eric for Writing Long Names. Thank you. You're forgiven. <laughs> Countess Fettuccini. <laughs> Countess Fettuccini. Any relation to Count Ravioli? Maybe she got married. Oh, and somebody else won. Uh, the Dino Raincoat has now gone extinct and wants to request for a refund. Great. Operators are standing by to process that. Um, anyway, next week's question. What is the name for the double agent working for the British Ministry of Magic as a bounty hunter who is secretly taking orders from Grindelwald? Mikey, you inspired this week's Quizzage question. Yeah. And uh, anyway, submit your answers to us via the contact form, or not the contact form, the Google form located on the MuggleCast.com website, MuggleCast.com slash Quizzage. Thank you so much. By the way, our production team, and by production team, I mean Eric, looked back at the transcripts and discovered the moment where Micah said, I haven't seen The Order of the Phoenix. This was, and this was after the DVD came out and you still hadn't <laughs> seen it? <laughs> what happens, Micah? Do you, is it possible I didn't watch it on DVD and that's what we're talking about? It's hard to say. No, because it says, are you going to ship a copy over to me since I have not seen Order of the Phoenix yet? Are you sure it wasn't just like a running joke? Micah, you like say maybe here. initially I had. But you say, no, I'm not joking. <laughs> All right. You got really. Well, I'm literally I've seen asking, the movie. Yeah, to the bit. I literally ask you, you didn't go to your local movie theater to see it? <laughs> <laughs> and Laura says, oh, my God, you are such a slacker. Where is Andrew? Come on, get out, Micah. <laughs> Well, it got violent. <laughs> As a reminder, the first 260-something transcripts are all on the MuggleCast website, by the way. So you too can play Who Said It with your friends. If you're looking for something new in the world of Harry Potter to read, just read our transcripts. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll publish them as a book one day. So if you have any feedback about today's discussion, you can email MuggleCast at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. We also have the voicemail line, one nine two zero three muggle That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. Or ye can or or ye or you can record <laughs> a voice memo on your phone and send that to MuggleCast at gmail.com. Or if you're like a podcasting professional like Eleanor appears to be. You can just record with your mic and send us a file that way, too. We're we're flexible. Also, a couple of reminders. Don't forget to join our community of MuggleCast fans today at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. You'll receive instant access to years of bonus MuggleCast installments, our exclusive Facebook group where fellow Harry Potter fans hang out with one another. You'll receive early access to each new episode of MuggleCast in an ad-free format, You'll receive a personalized video thank you message from one of the four of us. You'll receive that new physical gift that we announced if you pledge and remain pledged for a minimum of three months. 
That's patreon.com slash mugglecast. We would also appreciate if you made sure you're following the show for free in whatever app you use to listen to the show so you never miss an episode. And speaking of your podcasting app, if they have a review system, we would appreciate if you left us a quick little review so new listeners can get a sense of the show before they hit follow. And finally, follow, 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 follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. So thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.